The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, it's the time of year when we celebrate and give thanks for family and life and the bounty of the harvest. We also give thanks to friendship and Shakespeare. We'll look at Shakespeare's Sonnet 73 and then his autumnal play, The Tempest, in our traditional Wednesday Before Thanksgiving episode with our traditional guest, Lori Frankel, today on the History of Literature. Hello, welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson, feeling thankful for the good men and women who have written all this great literature to give us all this stuff to think about and talk about, and also thankful for all of you who have been in this dialogue and community with me for something like eight years now. It's hard to believe. We're growing old together, aren't we? (laughs) Which brings me to our first main subject today. Shakespeare's Sonnet number 73, the poet of an old man to his fair youth. Who is that fair youth? Old man, older man, I should say. And who is that fair youth? We don't know. But it seems to be a young man, based on the context of other poems about the fair youth, where the poet urges him to get married and father children, for example. But this particular poem doesn't need a biographical exegesis because the words can stand for any May-December relationship. Let's call it a May-November one. Why not? If the cliché fits, wear it or eat it, as the case may be. This is November, talking to May. An older lover talking to a younger one. And the conceit of the poem is basically to say, well, I'm old like autumn. I'm old like a sunset. I'm old like a nearly burned-out fire. Now, we know... Thinking about it a little bit, those things aren't exactly old. The sunset, you could say that's brand new. And autumn, in some respects, is just as old as spring. If you start your seasons with summer, autumn is younger than the following spring, for example. But the metaphors hold. These are things that mark the passage of time, the passage of something. When it's autumn, the green leaves on a tree, that era is gone. The bright day that we've known for several hours, well, that disappears with the sunset. And the fire roars until it dwindles, until it has no more to give. In that sense, all three of these phenomena are like a human life. And the older lover says to the younger one, That's me, isn't it? That's how I appear to you. But listen to how Shakespeare pulls this off. A listener asked me to read the entire poem at the start when I do these poems, when I do Emily Dickinson or some other poem. He said, why don't you read the entire poem at the start and read it again at the end? Make it easier for us, and maybe I should do that. Maybe we'll give that a try. It's like those spelling bee champions, which I once was. That's a long story. That's two long stories, actually. We'll save those, but you know what I mean, right? They say your word is squirrel, and you say, Squirrel, S-K-W-I-R-L, squirrel. Give that little bookend, make sure you're concentrating. Sonnet 73. That time of year thou mayst in me behold, when yellow leaves, or none, or few, 
do hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold. Bare ruined choirs, where late the sweet birds sang, in me thou seest the twilight of such day, as after sunset fadeth in the west, which by and by black night doth take away, death's second self that seals up all in rest. In me thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie, as the deathbed whereon it must expire, consumed with that which it was nourished by. This thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong, to love that well, which thou must leave ere long. Okay, let's take these in sections. We get three quatrains, four lines. We get autumn, we get the sunset, and we get the fire. That's how the poem is organized. And then we get the little couplet at the end, putting a capper on it. Let's take them in sections. Here's autumn. That time of year thou mayst in me behold. In other words, you're looking at me and seeing a time of year. And then we hear that it's autumn. When yellow leaves, or none, or few, do hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold, bare ruined, ruined, bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. Okay, so, He's saying, you look at me and you see that time of year when the leaves on the tree are not full. They're yellow. A cold wind blows through the branches. They used to have birds singing, but now they're empty like the pews in a church that used to be full of people singing. There once was a choir there. Now it's bare, ruined. That's a quick translation. Almost cliches, aren't they? Leaves turning, bare branched trees, cold wind, no singing. But look at that line. Look at the, the second line in that quatrain. When yellow leaves or none or few do hang. That picture of autumn. There's a beauty with all the yellow leaves, the turning. It's a richness. It's kind of like the great harvest where we bring up from the fields in autumn giant pumpkins and squash and apples and all the other signs of fall. We eat well. The branches are full of yellow leaves. It's beautiful. And then the other side of autumn, when all the leaves have fallen, none, no leaves. Ba branches are bare. And finally, this is his final in the three. First, we have yellow leaves or none. And then finally, or few do hang. Now, this is Shakespeare doing this out of order, right? It should be yellow leaves or few or none do hang. That's the progression. That's how time works. Leaves don't jump back onto the branches. Once they fall, they're done, and they will fall until there are zero. So we will go from many to few to zero, right? But he doesn't say that. So why say it this way? Why say yellow leaves or none or few? I don't know why he did it. I'm not in his mind, but I can measure the effect that it has on me. I, I think of the beauty of the tree with yellow leaves, still just as gorgeous and alive seeming as it is when it's green, maybe even more so. That flourish of color. It's a wonderful tree when the 
leaves are full before they've fallen, but they've changed color. Then I can picture zero leaves on the tree. That's dark, that's bare, that's empty, that's wintry, the very image of death. Everything that was there representing life is gone. Now it's just it's like a tree in hibernation. The color has turned to black. And then what? We go backwards in time a little, and we hear that there are a few yellow leaves. That's the image that's put in our mind third. Okay. There's a few yellow leaves, a few hanging on. Why do we end with that one? Well, this is where the lover really is, right? The older lover, the speaker, the poet, he's not in full flower, but he's also not dead. He's still hanging on. Still hanging on with enough to remind us of what once was. Leaves are clinging to those branches. It's saying, yes, yes, still here. I have, I have a few hairs on my head yet. My heart still ticks okay. I move a little slower. You might even catch me in the right light and think, oh yes, there's some beauty here. But mostly what you're going to see is Oh yes, what, what a beauty that once was. The reminder of my beauty, of my youth, of the past. That's what I am now. Amazing. Lands there because that's where the poet is. Next quatrain. In me thou seest the twilight of such day as after sunset fadeth in the west, which by and by black night doth take away death's second self that seals up all in rest. Okay, that's basically the same theme, right? He's saying, I'm not the knight, that's death. Shakespeare's phrase, death's second self, that's the knight, that's going to seal things up in rest. That's going to take away all the remaining light, but I'm I've still got a little light. I'm the twilight, the reminder of the day, the reminder of the past, of life, and the simultaneous glimpse of the future, which will be darkness. Black night will take things away. That is death. And the third stanza. In me thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie as the deathbed whereon it must expire consumed with that which it was nourished by. Okay, same thing again, basically, right? Glowing ashes, there's still some life there, a reminder of the fire. We've repeated the metaphor, but look at how we've moved. Once again, Time is out of order. It's in reverse, isn't it? The autumn, then the sunset, then the fire. We, we're not moving hour to day to season, which is how the clock moves, right? It moves a second before it moves a minute. It moves a minute before it moves an hour and so on. We've gone backwards. We've gone season to day to hour. We're not piling up time the way time piles up. We're removing it. We're shrinking it down. We're zooming in. And why? Once again, I can tell you the effect that it has. It's to concentrate the moment. 
It's not saying look at all that's gone before, how the minutes have turned into days and years and decades, and now we're at the other end looking back. It's saying look at what's here now. The most immediate of the metaphors, the instant of a fire, that has the seedlings of expiration as well. What nourishes also consumes, and it happens all the time, and it happens fast. And then the final couplet to give this all a little twist, right? We have, I'm old, I'm old, I'm old, so what? Well, here's the so what. This thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong, to love that well which thou must leave ere long. You see this while I see you, May. You see me, I know that you perceived, you perceivest me. You see me as November. You don't miss it, you don't miss my age, my aging. There's no mistaking what you see, but I see you too. I see how you love me in spite of what you're seeing. Thank you, May. November appreciates what you're doing. You must know you're going to lose me soon. And you love me anyway. It feels good to be loved that hard and that strong. Even as the leaves have yellowed, I'll keep clinging a little longer to this branch until I can't. That's Shakespeare number 73. And because, oh, I guess we can't move on yet till I repeat the can't spell squirrel without repeating the word. So here we go in spelling me fashion. Shakespeare number 70, sonnet number 73. That time of year thou mayst in me behold, when yellow leaves or none or few do hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold, bare ruined choirs, where late the sweet birds sang. In me, Thou seest the twilight of such day as after sunset fadeth in the west, which by and by black night doth take away, death's second self that seals up all in rest. In me thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie, as the deathbed whereon it must expire, consumed with that which it was nourished by. This thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong, to love that well, which thou must leave ere long. Shakespeare wrote well about aging, King Lear, of course, but there's another play, the one that may have been his last, or at least the last one he authored solely by himself, and it has some astonishing resonances with his own life, as he prepared to give up the theater and retire to Stratford. The play is about a magician named Prospero. The play is called The Tempest. And The Tempest is a storm that this magician Prospero creates himself with his magic. Let me give you a quick plot summary. Well, not really a plot summary, because I can never follow plot summaries, but a story of what the play is about. And then we'll have Laurie Frankel join us for a draft of things we love about this play. Okay. So, Prospero was once a big man in Europe. He was the Duke of Milan. He was wronged, betrayed by his brother and his associate, the King of Naples, and Prospero was forced into exile. Fortunately, he had the help of an old man who put him in a boat, 
and sent him off to the new world, where he landed on a remote island, armed with very little other than his books, which helped him learn how to become a sorcerer. With him on the island are his infant daughter, Miranda, and the island's only inhabitant, Caliban, whom Prospero quickly enslaves via his magic. He also frees a spirit named Ariel and binds him into his servitude as well. As the play begins, Prospero's brother Antonio, the man who usurped his throne, took over as the Duke of Milan, passes by on a ship. Prospero casts a spell on the sea and the sky to raise a mighty storm, a tempest, which wrecks the ship. Antonio and the others who are on board, including the son of the Duke of Naples, Ferdinand, straggle their way to the coast. Now, Prospero's goal is to take revenge on those who've kicked him off the throne. He has them on his home turf now, the island he knows better than anyone, and he also has the power of magic. He controls things here. He can use his spirit, Ariel, to help him, and Caliban, whom he has enslaved, is another possible helper. And he has his spells, of course. Meanwhile, his daughter Miranda, who's never seen a man other than her father in Caliban, who's viewed by the others as monstrous, Miranda falls in love with Ferdinand, and vice versa. This is all good for Prospero, too. The rest of the play is about finding vengeance and returning to one's rightful place, to the throne, or is it or is it about finding forgiveness? It's about finding one's home, one's true home, and maybe leaving that home behind. And in an epilogue, Prospero addresses the audience, and as you read it, you think about Shakespeare giving up his life in the theater, and all the sadness and sorrow and gratitude of that great man saying his farewell all comes out. Hmm. It's Shakespeare's Abbey Road. Abbey Road, that glorious last album of the Beatles where the four got together one last time to make an album like they knew they could, ending it with a song called The End, working on that album so closely together that when John, Paul, and George sat in chairs singing harmonies that took them all day, it was nine-part harmonies on the song, because Ringo sat in a chair with them. He wasn't singing, wasn't playing his drums, he had nothing to do. He just sat there for support. There was no other choice, really. When the four of them were alone as individuals or when there were two or even three of them in the room, they were gifted, talented, blessed, amazing. But, as people who spent time in the studio with them would say, when the four of them were in a room together, it was magic. Magic. And in those Abbey Road studios, on that album, Abbey Road, they went for the magic one last time in the in 358 years earlier or thereabouts 
probably about five miles away, Shakespeare had done something similar. The Tempest with Laurie Frankel. After this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is our great friend of the show, Lori Frankel, novelist and resident of Seattle and theater aficionado. She's here today to discuss one of her favorite plays, The Tempest by William Shakespeare. Lori Frankel, welcome back to the History of Literature. Thank you so much, Jack. I'm so glad to be here. So this has become kind of a tradition for us. The Wednesday before Thanksgiving, we come out with an episode with Lori and I can't help asking you about your plans. Are you hosting Thanksgiving this year? I am. I'm hosting Thanksgiving this year. I'm cooking for lots and lots and lots of people. Oh, wow. And you, <laughs> you make you? a vegetarian meal, right? That's true. I make a vegetarian meal. That is exactly yep. right. Yes, lots yes. of dishes. Yeah, we're hosting as well. This is We sort of have some years that are family years and some years that are friends years, um, oh. but we always seem to host. Uh, and this year is a friend's year, but that means we will do the usual uh, turkey and the the works. Yes. This is my favorite part of Thanksgiving. This is my favorite Thanksgiving tradition, doing this with you. Oh. Uh, I feel like the, the cooking <laughs> is, is just extra. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Well, I know a lot of people like to listen to the episode while they're cooking. So we'll, we'll, uh, I always kind of keep that in mind as we're rolling along here. I like to have stuff on the either podcasts or, or music going when I'm busy in the kitchen. 
Yeah, especially for a meal this big. You know, it's one yeah. thing if you're just making right. a little dinner or whatever, but for something like this, you need, you need content for right. sure. <laughs> you settle in for a few hours. So some of these years I have waited for an epiphany and I think, <laughs> what should Lori and I discuss this year? But this year I have known the topic since last year's yeah. episode. We are going to talk about The Tempest because you mentioned it in your My Last Book Choice. Yes, I did. I did. And I have thought about it <laughs> a lot since in the year that has passed. And I'm sticking with it. Oh, good. Um, okay. <laughs> you know, I think uh, when you asked me, it came to me immediately as being the right answer. Yeah. But then having thought about it for a year, I still think it's the right answer. Still so think obviously it's the right it's answer. The right answer. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And what cracked me up about that is not only did you choose it, you apologized for taking such an obvious choice. You assumed that it had been chosen over and over. And Lori, I've now probably asked a hundred people that question. You're the only one who's ever taken the Tempest. Yes, and all of those other people are wrong, I'm sorry to say. Uh, because like, that's how completely convinced I am that this is right But it does, it, thematically, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. So the other thing we talked about when you brought it up is you had mentioned that there was a play being put on here in D.C., actually in Bethesda. The Roundhouse Theater was putting on a version of The Tempest that was kind of special. Uh, we can talk about that, but I'm wondering, your parents were thinking about going. I'm wondering if they ended up going. They did. They did. Yeah. Um, yes, because uh, like you, <laughs> they live in the area. And everyone I know who lives in the area, I sent to that production. Of yeah. the Tempest. <laughs> uh, and they loved it. They loved it. And I I had I as you know, I was very enthusiastic about hyping it, um, which I think sometimes I in my great enthusiasm for things oversell right, a little bit. Right, you know, yeah. they, they loved it. They loved it. My my mother was and remains upset that I didn't, you know, go with them. Didn't fly um, back for it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's how much they loved it. Yeah, and I went, uh, had a great time, took the whole family, and, you know, it's always a little dicey when you've got people of different age ranges and so on going to a live performance of something. They might find it a little dull or it might not click with people, but we were four for four in my family, and I recommended it to some coworkers, and they took kids that were even younger than mine, and they loved it. And I'll tell the, the listening audience the big selling point is that Teller of Penn and Teller, the magic duo, was in charge. And Teller, for people who are a little bit familiar with the duo, is the smaller, quiet guy. He was the co-producer and was one of the selling points of the play was that it would have real magic. I mean, not real, but you know what I mean? Like, yes. like professional magic as part of Prospero's tricks. And that was fantastic. Yes. Yes. And I, well, this is in fact, I mean, I think we're going to talk about this more as this hour goes on. Um, but I think exactly what you said, it's good for all ages. Hmm. Um, it takes a play that is not necessarily a crowd pleaser in an obvious way. Like it's not a Midsummer Night's Dream. Mm -hmm. And nor is it even like Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet, you know, Juliet it's just yeah. Easily accessible or what have you. Right, um, right. It is a strange and complicated play. And as I say, I, I think it is just like obviously the thing you should be reading while dying, which is also not a great sell. Um, and yet that <laughs> that 
makes it good for all ages. It makes it like the thing that you're going to see for the holiday season and you're going to take your kids to and and talk them into Shakespeare. And I, I'm thrilled by that. Mm, yeah. Well, one of the interesting things when you say that it's complicated, <laughs> and it is, is that I read that it was it's one of only two Shakespeare plays where it was an original plot for him. The rest he had adapted or had borrowed the story from one of the a predecessor play or from a book of history or something. But this was one where he concocted the plot himself. Yeah. And so yeah. it's interesting to read it in that light and to think, well, this is what he would come up with if he wasn't adapting a play. This is kind of the, the way his storytelling mind worked. Yes. Yes. And it and you see that it is really complicated. Like the themes are certainly, you know, common enough. And there's lots of uh, fairy tale, I think, in this one. Mm. But the way it gets put together and the way the scenes kind of puzzle together and play off each other feels to me very different than any of his other plays. And it's very late. It's a very, very late yeah, play. Right. Um, people want it to be last, and it's probably not quite last. But it definitely has that feel of yeah. you know, of dying or of letting letting it go, um, laying it down, and um, that is a remarkable thing for an artist, yep. <laughs> especially you know one of that caliber, and that much success. I don't want to step all over our draft. We're going to do our draft here <laughs> of uh, our favorite things we're going to talk about, but I did want to mention a couple more things about the version of the play I saw. One of them was that Ariel who, you know, is kind of one of the magic figures in the play, was was amazing. And he, he, he did this great thing where he sat on the edge of the stage as everyone was filing in and did tricks. And, you know, like with the crowd, where he would have them pick a card. And, and he did it all in mime. He didn't say anything. But he would, you know, he had he, he just had full command of the room. And it was great because I always get to the play early and I always sit there and I feel a little bit kind of foolish because <laughs> I got to my seat. You know, I wanted to be there 15 minutes ahead of time or something and then there's nothing to do. But he was so entertaining that it made kind of the pre-play a an event in and of itself. I love it when there's a pre-play because me too, I'm always in my seat early. And also <laughs> it feels, well, one thing is it feels very Shakespearean to me because, you know, that's probably what it looked like on, on Shakespeare's yeah, stage. Right, Everybody's right. sort of milling around right. very much yep. this event before the event. Um, and I love it when they're silent yeah. uh, because to take away the power of speech is always such a huge deal. But with Shakespeare, I mean, that's what you're there for is the yeah. language. Yeah. And so to do it without for a little while makes it that much more powerful when everybody gets on stage and opens their mouth and this, you know, poetry comes out of it. Yeah. And then the other thing they did, and I don't know if this is common in productions or if it was special to this one, but it was the first time I had seen it. And they had Caliban played by two acrobats. Yeah. I've and, never seen that before. Yeah. I've never heard of it before except here. And they move. It was amazing. They moved in sync where, but, you know, in different ways. So sometimes they would kind of form and, and they'd be head to toe and they'd they'd move like a wheel. Or sometimes they'd move, one would be, you know, they'd ha they'd be arm's length back to back, and then they'd move kind of like a spider. And they'd, you know, but they, they just, you couldn't take your eyes off them because everything they did was so interesting. And it didn't look 
exactly human, but it was human-like, and it was just perfect for the way to convey this this monster who's constantly described as strange and monstrous, and and you know all of that, and it it was so uh, it was strangely beautiful, which is very appropriate for Caliban. Yes, yes, and that that idea that is said of him throughout, which is monster, but also human or something very, very like human, as opposed to Ariel, who is not, who is a fairy, who is ethereal, who is of some other realm. Caliban is some kind of monstrous human. And that duality and seeing it both at once, solving that problem in that way seems genius to me. Yeah. And then they could kind of separate a little bit and then (laughs) come back together. And sometimes you could really only see one of them. But other times they'd look like they had two heads and four arms and four legs. And and other times, you know, it was just amazing the number of different things they could do with that. And it was, uh, boy, it makes me uh, wish that I could go and see another performance of it. I would have gone just to watch those two as they acted out Caliban. Okay, so let's get to the draft. We're going to do 10 great things about The Tempest, and I am going to let you choose first. Lori Frankel, what is your number one? Well, I feel like, in fact, I have this note in parentheses to myself that says, get Jack to talk about the production at Roundhouse. So, <laughs> done. <laughs> I think it's the thing we should talk about first anyway, even though we started talking about it, which is magic. I think the best thing about this play is is the magic, I think all plays are about magic. Like, I, I think that's what, that's what plays are about, what yeah. we can pretend together, you know, as opposed to all other f- forms of media, which I think are, are not really about that. You know, most obviously, I guess, movies where you're not really pretending anything. It looks so real and it's so immersive that it's, you know, it's all around you. It's very loud and it, and they've CGI'd it to death. And so that, that's not magic. That's, that's technology. Whereas plays, they're going to get up in a room with you. You are all going to sit in a room together Hmm. and with really limited technology, even at our disposal, never mind at at Shakespeare's disposal, you make this magic. I mean, I, I just can't think of any, it sounds very woo woo, but I, I can't really think of any other word for it. And I think that's what I'm always thinking about when I'm, when I'm watching plays. But this play is also actually about that and the remarkable power of magic and also the limitations which are heartbreaking particularly because they've talked you into these limitless possibilities and then it turns out that no they're they're quite limited after all and they'll only get you so far and that is a sobering thing i think to experience both like topically and and metatextually Mm. something like that Yeah, that the magic has limits. And, you know, this is kind of getting into one of my choices, but we'll handle all that. We don't have to be too strict about the top 10 here, but... But because it's Shakespeare as well, and and especially because this is kind of a, a farewell performance in a way, it's the magician versus the theater artist and the overlap there. Because one of the great things about magic is that it's only Prospero who has it. It's not a world where everybody is, right. you know, anything can happen. It's a world that's being run by a manipulator who is allowed to be creative and he's allowed to, you know, he's also allowed to be kind of wise and this comes from books and and so on, but he's also kind of a dictator with it. It was interesting that you brought up film because I also thought about the 
kind of struggle with this question that Alfred Hitchcock would have and in, in a movie like Vertigo, where he's kind of saying, okay, I've created all of these fantasies and I've done all of these popular works. In some ways, I've been a magician. And in other ways, I've been kind of a manipulator and I've yeah. kind of controlled you and I've been in charge of all of it. And I could... I can kind of do what I want. It's a very powerful feeling. And, you know, I hope I've used it not for evil purposes, but I could have. <laughs> yeah, right. Yes, yes. And this, I mean, and you pointedly, it's tricks. And you're right that because Prospero is the only one who can do it, it's, it's not gods, it's not ghosts, it's not a magical realm. It's not that the rules of our world have ceased to apply. It's that he can manipulate you with his intelligence and command of language and things he's read and general seduction, I guess. And so therefore, it becomes this extraordinary metaphor for for writing anything and, and writing plays in particular. Um, yeah. You know, it's amazing for Shakespeare to stand up there at that point and say, look what I have done. <laughs> yeah. And the audience says okay to that. Right, right. That's the thing. And when you go and see a magic show, you know, you're kind of in that mode of like, I hope you fool me. I hope yeah. you trick me. If you're, yeah. you're going to entertain me, but only if I'm fooled. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> if I'm not, it's not going to work. And yes. and it's almost like Shakespeare kind of saying, well, people are coming to these plays and I can make them laugh. I can make them cry. I can yeah. make them do all of these things because I'm making them believe in something that really isn't true. Yeah. And that you know isn't true. Right, right. You're <laughs> right. We're conspiring in this together. We are conspiring in this together. And there's nothing better than that. And, and that's what you do every time you go to the theater, no matter what you see. Yeah, and so... Right. To call attention to it rather than to distract you from it, mm -hmm. which we also see a lot of in Shakespeare, particularly earlier. Well, I suppose almost everything is earlier than this. But this sort of like, oh, I have to get a ghost on stage. So look over there so that you don't notice that I'm pulling this wire. I'm, I'm lowering this rope, whatever it is. Here, he's saying, look behind the curtain. See what we have done. Let's examine the apparatus. And still you believe it yeah, um, right. is, is, is magic. I mean, it's magic. That's what it is. <laughs> right. And just that he's not sort of saying, let's celebrate the beauty of it and the wonder. And hasn't this all been grand? But he's also kind of saying it's also a little creepy. And it's Dark also, AF. yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a little, it's a little bizarre to me that I've been able to do this to you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and, and that we could as well consider it fairly evil. Yeah. And we do sometimes. Yeah, right, right. Okay, well, that's a great pick. I don't know if we'll, we could almost end the show right here, but we'll, uh, <laughs> I'm sure we'll have uh, nine more things to, <laughs> <At least. laughs> to talk about. So why don't I, I kind of used up one of mine doing that, but why don't I go ahead and I'll say, I'll take Caliban as a thing. And, uh, you know, the Caliban, kind of an anagram for cannibal, and by all accounts, Shakespeare was a big reader of Montaigne, and Montaigne had a famous essay on cannibals called Of Cannibals, written in 1580 and translated into English a decade or so before The Tempest was written. So we can pretty much guarantee that Shakespeare was influenced this because there are speeches in here in The Tempest that are almost lifted word for word from 
Montaigne's essay. And he has this great point of view that I think is also probably very influential to Shakespeare, which is, I've got a quote here, he says, there is nothing savage or barbarous about those people. He's talking about the peoples of the new world. Montaigne says, there's nothing savage or barbarous about those peoples, but that every man calls barbarous anything he is not accustomed to. And then he also says that contemporary European societies were so filled with treachery and disloyalty and tyranny and cruelty, he says that they surpassed them, the cannibals, in every kind of barbarism. And it's really, uh, you know, like, God bless Montaigne for helping Shakespeare to see that, because it's really what makes The Tempest so compelling is that we can read it as not just, I mean, it can be criticized for a lot of things, but Shakespeare is in on the criticism. He's there with us saying, yes, Caliban can be viewed as a monster, but we can also look at the people who are viewing him as a monster and say, well, wait, are they maybe just misunderstanding Caliban? He's got a lot of, he's got a sensitive side as well. And he, Shakespeare gives him those moments too. And some people have taken this and said that everything about Caliban was just being misperceived by the others. And the actor David Suchet, who's I know mostly as uh, Poirot, but he played Caliban and he said even the scene, which is often viewed as kind of the one thing that Caliban you can't really excuse, is that he attempted to sexually assault or rape uh, yeah. Miranda. Yeah. And even David Suchet said maybe that wasn't really an attempted rape. Maybe he was seducing Miranda and they overreacted because of their attitude toward him. And I don't know if I will go that far. I kind of like the idea that Shakespeare was just trying to show us the mix and to say he's got good and bad in him. He's not all good. He's not all bad. And it would be easy to make him all good and say colonialism is bad, or it'd be easy to make him all bad and say, see, we're justifying colonialism. But what's hardest is what Shakespeare chooses, I think, which is we can blame a, a usurper for taking over a country like Prospero does. But if we're going to do that, we have to accept that sometimes the native might do bad things. Or we can praise uh, Prospero for saying, oh, he brought civilization to the natives. But if we're going to do that, we have to acknowledge that he's probably self-interested and exploitative and unjust and, and blind to the humanity of the native. And it feels to me like Shakespeare is just as usual kind of presenting what's true from every point of view instead of picking one or picking the other. Yes. Yes. Um, Yeah, that's really well said because I get really cranky when it's all the way one way or all the way the other way. Yeah. And in fact, for a play that is 400 years old, that is, you know, for us to occupy this position now, we're like, well, you can argue this thing and you can also see it this other way is one thing. But it's like 400 years ago is a really remarkable thing to make what is essentially both arguments at the same time. And I always, uh, I get very uncomfortable when productions cut a bit about the rape even though I, of course, see why they do it, because it's really important. It definitely seems as if overtures were made and then a line had to be drawn. And that is very, very complicated, which, among other things, means that every time you go see this play, you get a completely different Caliban. You know, I mean, 
so, so okay, Prospero is being played by a woman, or Prospero is younger in this production, or I don't know, is wearing a silly hat, or you know, is dressed as a hippie, or whatever. Like these kind of minor variations. Whereas Caliban could be anything at all, yeah, and could be portrayed any way at all, and that is supported by the text, which is remarkable. Like, just a remarkable thing, and it's just I think one of the joys of seeing this play on stage. Yeah. The reason that Caliban gives for the rape is, you know, he wants to see his own kind populate the island. Yeah. And obviously, we're not going to sit and say that there are any reasons to justify something like that. But David Suchet would say, well, look, that is kind of a justifiable motive from his point of view. And isn't Prospero trying to do something similar? He just came and took the island. You know, he he's trying to he's trying to steal from Caliban something that's his. And Prospero says, you know, this thing of darkness, I acknowledge mine and we cannot do without him. And it ends up to me feeling like Caliban is he's the body. He's the earth. He's always described as the part of the bog or the dirt or the logs or sexual desire. And he's, he's kind of the darkness within us, whether we're the people who are there when the visitors arrive or whether we're the visitors who arrive somewhere else, we're all the same. We're not Kings unless we have subjects and, you know, we can't live this way unless other people are doing work for us somehow. And it's, it's almost like Caliban is just a, a another variant of humanity that we all have within us. Yes. And it's, I always tear up at that line, this thing mm. of darkness, I acknowledge mine. He does acknowledge him as his. I mean, it, they make a very strange family, Prospero, Miranda, Caliban, and Ariel. But but they are a family in a lot of ways. And it's not always done this way, certainly. That I acknowledge this part too, rather than mm-hmm. I disavow this, I pretend that it isn't there. I've yeah. never seen this guy before in my life. Or, you know, or more to the point, like he is so different from we are. We we are civilized and he is this thing of darkness. He is over there. He is not my he has nothing to do with me. And that's not what he says. This is yeah. mine. I, I own this. This is part of us too. And and that is true. I mean it is it is just inarguably true. Yeah. Okay. Let's hear your number two. Well, I'm going to skip my number two because we can bring it up. At least maybe we can circle back to it. But I want to talk about Ariel, too, because he he kind of goes goes with Caliban. Yeah, right. um, You know, at least like on the casting list (laughs) and in in our minds. (laughs) I think especially these days and for the last, I don't know, couple of decades, maybe we think of Caliban as very beleaguered and much is made about how horribly he is treated and this metaphor for colonialism and all of this stuff. But in fact, it seems to me that Prospero's treatment of Ariel is, if anything, worse, Mm. which is really amazing because he is so often presented as a friend, a confidant, this like right-hand man. He's like Peter Pan's Tinkerbell, yeah. (laughs) Yes, right, yes, exactly, which is probably also problematic, though I thought about it less, (laughs) but I'm betting. (laughs) Um, You know, but like, first of all, because indeed, Caliban, everyone everyone on stage agrees. Uh, Again, it's not like Miranda says he tried to rape me, and Caliban says, what are you talking about? Caliban says, yes, I did, and I'd do it again if I could. Yeah. And which justifies certainly their considering him a thing of darkness. Um, You know, at least we understand that. And he is 
human and they are human. And so as we were talking about before, they are part of one another. Ariel is this magic sprite who also is native to the island and whom he enslaves and and has do his bidding and calls it his own. You know, Prosper takes credit for all of this. And this goes on to the very, very end of the play. At the very end, what he says is, do one more thing for me, and then I set you free. And we don't see that, which makes him enslaved to the end mm. um, and really wondering what sort of an island he is going to be left with when everyone else leaves, what it is that he has inherited. I think that he is much less varied on stage than Caliban, and we are much less offended by and appalled by his treatment. But I think I, I think it is arguably worse, and I like to see it argued <laughs> that mm, it is worse. Yeah, right. And it, it's interesting to think through what Shakespeare would have had in mind with that, because Ariel is kind of the slave of imaginative power, like Caliban yeah. is the slave of earth, earthly desire and, and the body. But uh, why would Shakespeare be so hard on imaginative power to, you know, what is he saying about his imagination that he, uh, as, you know, if he's in Prospero's shoes, that he's making it do what he wants or that he's controlling it in a way? Or is he saying that he's got an Ariel that he can call up and make do things whenever he wants? Yeah. Yeah, which is a really, I mean, amazing <laughs> thing to feel about yourself and your creative power, especially yeah. if you're the greatest writer who's ever lived. <laughs> and two, this notion that you might have that it wants to be free of, of you. Mm. Because Ariel right. talks about this throughout. It's not something that just occurs to him at the end, like, hey, if you're leaving, can I can I be free? Yeah. <laughs> he. I mean, again, something everyone agrees with. He is set free in order to essentially, you know, do it to enslave, to do his bidding. Right, right. And he does not have a choice in that matter. He And he clearly is, is very pained by it. Um, yeah. and whereas Caliban arguably is at least getting something from this arrangement or was at one time. This is not true, Ariel. That's interesting, isn't it? That it yeah. seems to be Caliban is the attitude is, well, you're enslaved to me because that's all you're good for. And you deserve it because of what you are. And Ariel is like, you owe me because I helped you. You're going to be my slave because you should do it out of gratitude because without me, you were trapped and I freed you. Yeah. Which is very manipulative. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes. And not owning up to that manipulativeness. Yeah. Right. Again, versus Caliban, where it is very much the subject of any number yep. of discussions. Like, I get it. I get it. You, you, It's not really fair what we're doing to you. You were here yeah. first, and I'm yeah. kind of taking advantage yeah. of you anyway. And yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, let's take I a know. quick break, and then we'll yeah. come back with more about The Tempest. Okay, we're back. So, Lori, I feel like we're kind of jumping ahead, which is good because we're kind of running long on time anyway. So <laughs> I feel like we're on our number three that you gave your number three. So I'll give mine, which kind of piggybacks off of Ariel in a sense, which is the language. 
one of my favorite things to do in any Shakespeare play is to look for those moments where a word will come up like sea change and you think, oh my God, was he the first one to say that? <laughs> and then you look it up and yes, he was. That we say the expression sea change because it's in the tempest. And and then thinking how many times I've used that to just mean a big change without even really connecting it to the full fathom five thy father lies where he's describing the way this this corpse would look underwater and the sea change is uh, full fathom five thy father lies of his bones are coral made those are pearls that were his eyes nothing of him that doth fade but doth suffer a sea change into something rich and strange yes. and it's that it's talking about a corpse underwater which in some ways is gives me shivers to think yeah. about and then to think but it actually can turn into something that is kind of beautiful in a way, uh, but that beauty is also, it makes me double down on the shivering I get <laughs> to think about this body that has been transformed into these uh, things that have taken away part of what it meant to be human, but also, yeah. you know, they're almost there now like a mask or like a an effigy or something. And uh, it's just such a, such a, beautiful way to think of this expression sea change getting its start in this great way and then carrying on as something people have used over and over to say well that was a sea change uh because they probably were struck when they went to see the tempest of (laughs) wow a sea change would be such a powerful thing to see Yes, yes, it is. And you find them throughout this play. Yeah, right. I went back when we decided to do this and to look at one of the dozen and a half copies I have in my house, the one that I started with. And I have underlined, you know, I have underlined half of it, basically, (laughs) Um, because there's so much really remarkable language and imagery in it. I mean, because it is a writer at the height of his powers. Mm, Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's that same thing of magic. Like, look what I can do. Only, not only do I not need, you know, a trap door or what have you, um, never mind CGI, but like, I can do it just with language. Yeah. And it's, it's got the greatest hits of Brave New World. Yeah. And we are such stuff as dreams are made on. Uh, But like you say, there's just so much. Uh, I was looking at one of the speeches of, Miranda, and I like to read the side-by-side Shakespeare versions where I get the uh, sort of a modernized translation on one page, mm. and then I can, yeah. so I can kind of blaze through 10 pages in a row if I want and, yeah. and not have to slow down, and then I can go back and savor the language. And there was one, <laughs> there was one where the translation, which you'd want a writer today to write it this way because it is easier to read, especially if you were reading a novel. And the translation for Miranda's speech was, Dear Father, if you caused this terrible storm with your magic powers, please put an end to it. Yeah. And the actual line is, If by your art, my dearest father, you have put the wild waters in this roar, allay them. Yeah. Isn't that great? Or the translation for another one is, it never occurred to me to imagine there was anything more to know, which is very straightforward. But the actual is, more to know did never meddle with my thoughts. 
and metal is such a good verb for yes. what she's talking about that that it would not only be something you know that she hasn't imagined or that was kind of unimaginable but to to imagine it would have meddled with her thoughts it would have disrupted the way she was thinking about her father and about their shared history together it's just a perfect way to to express it and it's just uh it's just Shakespeare at his best. There's also some great insults in here for people who like to collect yes. Shakespeare's insults. The, you know, a pox or your throat, you bawling, blasphemous, yeah. incharitable dog. And <laughs> they just get on a roll and uh, it's so good. Okay, so that was my number three. Uh, we are up to your number four. Oh, I'm, we're running out, and I there's so much left to talk about. I think let's talk about Miranda and Ferdinand's yes. relationship, yep. um, particularly because it it actually goes so well with language in a yeah. in a play that is um, that is where there's so many lines that have six meanings stuffed into them. Like metal is a really good example, and there's so much poetry and so much complicated structure. And these two are clear as a bell. They do not go down as as one of Shakespeare's great couples, but I think that they are. I think they're I think they're one of his best couples. I think it's one of the best love stories. Yeah. Act three, scene one, where these two meet. This love scene. I think it is one of the better scenes in, in the whole canon. Yeah. She's so strong in such a different way than usual. Yes. I mean, you know, she's she's not a princess. She's not this like rich court society type that we get so often. She's not, you know, dainty and pretty and quaffed and well-dressed and well-spoken. She's not coy. She's probably not even clean. And he loves her. He, who is all of those things and has been raised in this world, loves her on sight. And in fact, you know, they have this exchange where she's like, um, let me carry those logs for you because I'm really strong and you're wearing really nice clothes and that sucks for you. Um, yeah. Why don't you just let me carry these logs? And he thinks this is hot and I'm in at that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And she also has the agency where she cuts to the chase and basically says, you know, are we getting yep. married or what? Yep. Like this is, she's got the agency there. It really is an unusual kind of character, a kind of a female character, especially for Shakespeare, yeah. where yeah. It, where she exerts this power, yeah. not through her strength or her wits or her right. family, you know, background or anything like that. Or her beauty. Or her beauty or being devious or, right. or, or bold, but through sweetness and innocence, yeah. Yeah. which you would expect to mean that she was going to be a victim of some kind. And instead, she that's what she uses. And it's so interesting to think of Shakespeare thinking of, uh, well, what would a young woman be like who has been away from society and who has grown up in this kind of natural state? What yeah. would her personality turn out to be? Yeah. And he he gets that she's not going to have all of the the trappings of, you know, some kind of courtier or some kind of, you know, wiser beyond her years person. She would have this kind of sweetness and innocence. She's hardly ever seen any people. And yeah. she hasn't been, you know, part of any kind of intrigue or anything like that. But that he doesn't make that a source of, so she therefore is a delicate flower who needs to right. be protected because yes. she doesn't understand anything. But that but right. that there is a strength in that is just a wonderful idea for a character. Yeah. Yes, it is. 
And that's what Prospero has to learn too, because his instinct as well is to protect her from, yeah. from the world. And he has to learn, as must we all with our teenagers, that that he can't protect her. She has to she has to go out and, and do it and all he can do is make her as strong as possible. And and you know, and he has, and there's an extent to which it's innocence. She I mean, in fact, this is the scene where she says, I've never met another woman. I, I do know, I think she says, I do not know one of my sex. Um, I, I've never seen a female human besides myself. Mm. And, and you know, which is this, like, obviously she's quite sheltered, but that is neither what causes her to be so strong, nor what causes him to be so taken with her. And I, it's, I mean, as a novelist, what strikes me about it is it's just really good character development mm. really quickly. They yeah. don't have to tell you that right. he's not shallow. As <laughs> soon as he like comes upon this, you know, dirty, tangle-haired woman who's like dressed in sticks or whatever, yeah. and um, who observes the fact that she could carry logs much more easily than he could, and so therefore should, because that only makes sense. And he's like, okay, I love you. <laughs> That's all I need to know about him. And her. It's really remarkable. Uh, and it's very sweet. And I love it on stage. Yeah. Uh, oh, on stage, yeah. it almost got a standing ovation when they oh. first saw each other and fell in yes. love. You know, yes. there were, you could just feel the joy in the audience of like, oh, isn't this great? You know, yeah. just that they, <laughs> it's just <laughs> so many positive vibes coming out of her at this moment where she's seeing him and, and thinking, well, this is a, here's a fella. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Right. And this is the one, this is the one for me. Yeah. Um, and she's so clear. I mean, he's still speaking in this, you know, highfalutin kind of right. court verse, courtly verse. Um, although I do love it when he calls himself her patient log man. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's one of, the, one of the better things to say about oneself. <laughs> but, you know, her response to that is, do you love me? I mean, it's not translatable in a side by side because, because it is, just so clear. Do you yeah. love me? Right. And and he does. And uh, and she knows it. And so that's not a problem. Moving on. Moving on to the next problem. It's uh, <laughs> and it's smack in the middle of the play, and it's what kicks off Act Three. And yep. so it it in some ways is what the rest of the play revolves around, and and should. Right. Okay. I think I only have one more that I really want to okay. talk about. So I will skip to my. Uh, I'll do that, and then I'll let you add anything else you want. Mm, okay. Uh, or we can end it here. But this is this is just that this is Shakespeare as the about to be retire E. You know, I think it's his last solo work, at yeah. least. But there's so many little hints in here. There's Prospero, who's retiring to Milan, which you could almost view as, as Stratford, where Shakespeare was about to head. And he says, every third thought shall be my yeah. grave. And yes. he... Which is why I said, this is my one. That's <laughs> because of that line. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And and he says, I'll drown my book at one point. And yeah. it, it is this kind of feeling of, you know, somebody who's had a great career and they're giving it up. He says he's going to give up the globe at one point, which is yeah. maybe a clue uh, with his theater. And and you can imagine it's almost like athletes when they 
uh, win the Super Bowl and then announce their retirement or something. And they maybe know that they have another year or two in them, but they think, well, it's got to be some time and this is a good time. And maybe I will look forward to uh, doing something that doesn't involve all of the the chaos of the theater, but I know I'll miss it too. And it just has so much of that feeling in it. And then with the epilogue and the way that he's communicating with the audience and saying, we're dependent on the gentle breath, which I I interpret that as praise of the kind critics and and the help of your good hands and the applause. And he's sort of saying, we've done this together. I haven't been alone here writing in a, a vacuum. I've been out here on stage sometimes and sometimes in the wings and and you the crowd have been a big part of this and this has been part of my life and it's going to be part of my past and that's how the cycle of life that's how it happens yes yes i mean yes and it is it is harper I and mean, this is a play that i cry through when i go to see it almost beginning to end, <laughs> even though it's not, it's not morbid. It's not morose. Right, right. It's, it's not, I, you know, I think I said this last year when, when you asked about what I wanted to, to die to, it's not, it is not a play. It isn't a tragedy mm-hmm. and it's not a play about dying. It's just a play about saying goodbye. Yeah, um, right. And, you know, there are two other thoughts that you get and for every three, two of them are not about death, but, but one of them is. And so it's this 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 winding down um, and bowing out with yeah. grace and also gratitude. And I think should that not be what we are all what we are all striving for? Yeah. It is heartbreaking and it is beautiful and it's right. Yeah. And it it also that is something we all have to do, whether it's saying goodbye to our grandparents or our parents, and and you kind of you mourn not only the loss of them, because sometimes that is kind of easy if they've gotten to a point in their life where things have gotten very hard and, and maybe you see that, that illness or, or age has kind of uh, taken away their joy and, and you're, it comes as a blessing is the phrase everybody uses. But, but even so, a part of you is mourning the loss of the person, but you're also mourning the end of that era. And the you're mourning the end of your own youth or, you know, something that you had and, and that it means time has moved on. And it's just like, you know, we don't have high school and our high school friends anymore. We don't have the music of that era is not as fresh anymore. And it just feels like it's not exactly nostalgic. It's more like it's looking ahead to the point where you will look back and be nostalgic. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah. but at the same time, it's also kind of exciting and, and there's something optimistic here. And it's like saying Shakespeare knows that he's for the ages and he's looking ahead maybe to the point where he'll be celebrated as such. And his little corner of London, England is changing too. It's opening up. There's a brave okay. new world out there. Yes. There's this place across the ocean and, and everything that he enjoyed about the theater world is kind of part of his past, and maybe kind of part of the past as fads change and people's taste changes and so on. And you could almost imagine him thinking, well, if I returned here 30 or 40 years from now, there would be new young playwrights who would be dominating the scene and I wouldn't recognize, you know, they they wouldn't have any need for me. And it's got that kind of feel to it as well. 
Yes. And, and you love the chance for him to say goodbye. Yeah, um, thank right. you and goodbye. And this is, of course, reading all sorts of things into this play that may or may not be there. But it's it's hard not to see. It's hard not to think that Shakespeare must have had so much more in common with Prospero or have been writing a version of himself mm-hmm. as opposed to Coriolanus or Lear or right. know, something like that. Right. Here's the only thing I will add in the way of uh, my long, long list of things that I had to talk about today. Um, but it, it dovetails nicely with this and I think is is sort of the, might bring us to the end as well, which is the thing that strikes me about this play so often is how much agency there mm. is in it. And mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense if you yourself are saying, I'm laying down my pen, mm. I'm walking away from this life into what comes next. And that it's true from the first moments of this play. So often the storms are things that happen to you, like Twelfth Night or Lear, literally, where the storm is the manifestation of the fates or what have you. And, you know, in fact, of course, these are all over the place. These like, you know, metaphorical near misses or misunderstandings, or you've you've pissed off the fates and, and now there's this tragedy or like even right. the epic scope of the histories. But that isn't true here. The storm doesn't happen to him. <laughs> he makes the storm. And, you know, this part you were reading earlier, that's what Miranda says. I know this is you. Knock it off. Yeah. And, and it is a journey to knocking it off, to taking back control when society falls apart and, you know, your family is catastrophic and things have been really bad for a long time. And that is, first of all, it is unfortunately timeless. And also it is really apt for the play that you write to walk away. Mm. I'm going to give James Joyce the last word on The Tempest, where his character Stephen Dedalus says, quote, he returns after a life of absence to that spot of earth where he was born, where he has always been, man and boy, a silent witness. And there, his journey of life ended. He plants his mulberry tree in the earth, then dies. The motion is ended. End quote. <laughs> nice. That's nice. <laughs> okay. So, Lori Frankel, what books should we tell people about? Should we say you're the author of One, Two, Three, or Goodbye for Now, or This is How It Always Is, or Family, Family, coming uh, January 23rd, 2024? Yes. I see. Yes. Yes. I have a new book coming out in January, which is called Family, Family. And actually, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. It's about an also a, a large and non-traditional family, not quite as non-traditional as I've enslaved to this fairy, but, you know, uh, non-traditional enough. It is about adoption. It is about a, and it's also about the theater, actually. There's much of it that takes place on Broadway and among theater folk. And there's some Shakespeare in it because there's always some Shakespeare in it. And um <laughs> And yeah, that's called Family Family. I hope that people will like it. Okay. Well, I see that if you go to lauriefrankel.net, there's a link to it. And it says that if one buys from the Queen Anne Book Company, that Laurie Frankel will walk up the hill and sign it. <laughs> yes, that is absolutely true. I would be thrilled to do it. Um, they're my, they my <laughs> local indie. Seattle is lucky to have lots and lots of really good bookstores, but that one is mine. Okay, so this one sent me down a bit of a rabbit hole because I wanted <laughs> to check out the Queen Anne Book Company and I wanted to make sure they were doing right by you. So I looked at their staff 
pics, <laughs> which they post online. And I thought, I hope that they are going to be, there's going to be at least one staff member who's going to be recommending a Lori Frankel book since you're right down at the bottom of the hill. And the very first link I clicked on was indeed <laughs> a staff member who had recommended your book, uh, One, Two, Three. And I prepared a little surprise for you, a little quiz. And this oh. is going to be, this is the staff member. I don't know if you've read this, but the staff member compared your book. She said it's a combination of, and then she had four different books. And so I'm going to give you, this is going to be like Mad Libs, where I'm going to give you a description <laughs> of the book and see if you can guess which book was the one that went into uh, the the melting pot that became one, two, three. Okay, are you ready? <laughs> Okay. She said it's a combination of a modern day, and then she named a 19th century American novel. A 19th century American novel. Um, you need a hint. It is about a family of is sisters. It little women. <laughs> little women, yes. Little women. Okay. <laughs> okay. Does that make sense? I'd buy that. So mixed with... And then she named a 1990s legal thriller. A book? Yes. Or is well, it a... it's a book and a film. And a film. Um... The film starred John Travolta. Uh, was it Hairspray? Be, you might not be familiar with <laughs> it. Was it was yeah. not Hairspray. <laughs> uh, a civil action. Um, so, I'm sorry, say again? A civil action. Civil action. No, I don't know it. Okay. So that's in there too. And then the third one, I think, is going to be a very difficult one for you to guess. So I'll just kind of talk you through it. She says, with hints of, and it was a memoir about a medical trauma that was also mm -hmm. made into a movie. But it's not, that might be a hard one to guess. So unless you have a guess, uh, I'll just tell you. I don't, I don't know. I don't have Yeah. So that was the diving bell and the butterfly. Oh, sure. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I would not have guessed that, but yes. The last one. So it was with hints of that and, and then she named a Shakespeare play. <gasps> really? Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> is it King Lear? Nope. No. See, because that's three daughters. This will be a good guess. Um, is it, oh, give me a hint. Is it a comedy? It is, uh, it's a tragedy. A tragedy. A, one of, but not one of the big four. A romantic tragedy. Romantic tragedy. Oh my gosh, I have no idea. That's so interesting. Um, romantic tragedy that is like one, two, three, and this is interesting. That it's it's kind of far afield for you, but she it, said it was Romeo and Juliet. Oh, interesting. Well, sure, because there's a lot of Romeo and Juliet in this uh, in, the, in the book. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay, okay, so the full sentence was: This novel feels like a combination of a modern day Little Women mixed with a civil action, with hints of the diving bell and the butterfly and Romeo and Juliet. It was stunning to savor chapter by chapter, and I already can't wait to reread it so I can spend time with these characters again. That nice. Isn't that They're nice? They're so great. Yes, that's so great. They're so great. See, it's nice to have your own bookstore. <laughs> it is nice to have your own bookstore. You just walk up the hill, and uh, now yeah. you can say hello, and you can say uh, that you 
You guessed uh, what? You guessed one of the four. <laughs> I guessed one of the four, yes, which is abysmal. <laughs> well, it shows how, uh, you know, how much you put into the book that it, it can be so, uh, so rich that uh, it wasn't yeah. so predictable. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's go with that. I love that. <laughs> okay. Lori Frankel, happy Thanksgiving. And thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving to you and to everyone. This has been a delight, as always. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Lori Frankel for joining me. Please do check out her books at lauriefrankel.net. And my thanks to The Bard for giving us The Tempest and Sonnet 73, two pieces of autumn that remind me of just how much I have to be thankful for. Speaking of which... I hope you all have a wonderful Thanksgiving if you're celebrating it soon. And if not, I hope you have another occasion where you can enjoy food with your family and friends and think a little bit about how rich and strange this world can be when it's at its best. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>